So if you have your Bibles, please turn to Ed, is this yours? Please turn to Luke chapter 16. We'll be looking at this morning. Before we start, would you please join me one more time in prayer? Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word. It is life. It shows us the Lord Jesus. It teaches us how to love you and what we need to know about you, and it teaches us how we are to obey you. And so we pray for your guidance now as we look at your word. Father, as John said, I've put a lot of preparation into it, and yet, Father, I know by the power of your Holy Spirit, you can yet guide me as I bring this message, and I pray you would that you would allow me to speak clearly and correctly and that everyone's hearts would be soft, including mine, and that we could hear what you would have to say. And so we commit ourselves to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. just want to remind you that this is the Word of God. Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. Now he said to his disciples, said to the disciples, there was a rich man who received an accusation that his manager was squandering his possessions. So he called the manager in and, and asked, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you can no longer be my manager. Then the manager said to himself, What will I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do, so that when I'm removed from the management, they will welcome me into their homes. So he summoned each of one of his uh, master's debtors. How much do, I, do you owe my master, he asked the first one. A hundred measures of olive oil, he said. Take your invoice, he told him. Sit down quickly and write 50. Next, he asked, asked another. How much do you owe? A hundred measures of wheat, he said. Take your invoice, he told him, and write 80. The master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly, for the children of this age are more shrewd than the children of light in dealing with their own people. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of worldly wealth, so that when it fails, they may welcome you into, an eternal, into eternal dwellings. Whoever is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and whoever is unrighteous in very little is also unrighteous in much. So if you have not been faithful with worldly wealth, who will trust you with what is genuine? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to someone else, who will give you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Some of you may be wondering, why did Tom choose this chapter? Why did, why did I choose this? You know, and often I think when a particular man stands up here, you wonder, why did he choose something? Unless he's preaching through <coughs> a book. Well, I have to be honest and say it's only because it's a challenging chapter, and it's somewhat misunderstood and even a bit controversial, and I wanted to study it and make an attempt to bring it to you all in a manner that would be both edifying to you and, and to me, Lord willing, and honoring to God. And so to be completely honest, it's quite convicting to me personally. So I do think this really is a message from our Lord Jesus to all of us. And what's interesting is chapter 16, when you look at the Greek, is all one pericope. It actually is flowing from 15. There's no break. And, and linguistics and language, every language has these things where it signals breaks that there's a new topic, a new thing, a new event. And none of those exist clear through this whole chapter. And so all the little section headings in there, you could just scratch them out because it breaks it up. 
Um, it's all one sermon. Um, and I would have loved to have brought the whole sermon to you, but as I was working on it, I realized we'll be lucky to get through 13 verses and, and stop at the normal time. So that would have to be, I think, two other sermons, really. But he, the first part of the sermon, he, he speaks to his disciples. The, the Pharisees are standing there, and they respond in their hearts, and Jesus knows it, so he speaks to them. And they grumble, and then he tells the, the story of the rich man and Lazarus. It's all one, one passage. And as I said, it's coming out of 15. It actually, there's no break from 15. Um, and one commentator, a man by the name of Joel Green, calls it, this whole chapter, Kingdom Economics. And I do like that name. But we'll just look at the first 13, and we'll start um, by going through verse by verse on, on the parable to understand what the parable says and highlight these different things. Because there's a number of things that are cultural that aren't quite apparent to us in the modern world. When Jesus starts this parable, there was a rich man. There was a certain man, the Greek says. And he often starts his parables that way. This, one, this particular man was rich. And it says he had a steward or a household manager. This is same meaning. It's a steward is a household manager. And in first century Palestine, I'm afraid I'm going to drop these reading glasses. I made, printed this big enough I can see it, thankfully. Um, in first century Palestine, most commonly a rich man, a guy that had estates, wouldn't even live on his estate. He would live somewhere else, often a big city, um, maybe Jerusalem, maybe somewhere else. And uh, he would have a manager that would uh, look over his entire estate and have, would have essentially absolute authority over it. It seems in, not infrequently this, this particular person would be a very loyal slave, perhaps somebody that had taken the vow of loyalty to his master. But the way Jesus tells this story, it's clear that this man is hired. This is a hired man, and he has the authority. Maybe you've got the owner and then the CEO. He's sort of the CEO in a sense. And he had the authority to do the business. That means collecting the money, writing bills, doing what he does later in this parable where he cuts the bills down. He had that authority to do it. So we often read that and think, oh, yeah, he's being corrupt again. But no, he actually had the authority to do that. So what's interesting is a charge has come against this man to the manager, against the manager to the master. And the rich man, the master, has found out about it. And so in verse 2, the rich man calls, calls him to account. You're going to have to come in. You're going to have to show me the books. We're going to bring this up to account. You're going to be fired. What's interesting is, is it's kind of subtle, but notice that the rich man believed the charges. That's the way Jesus tells the story. The rich man just believed the charges. We, you could get off into the minutiae and say, well, why did he do that? He should have investigated that. But that's not the point of the story. Jesus just makes it clear. The, manager, the, the master believed the charges. And then Jesus told the story that the, the manager didn't refute it. He knew he was caught. He was busted, and, and, the, and the party was over. Moving to verses 3 and 4, we see him thinking to himself. He's talking to himself. And Jesus often does that in parables. He gives us insight into his main character, what, what's being thought, what, what's, what's processing, uh, his, you know, that person is processing about this thing. And so he knows he's in trouble, and he's, fact, he's kind of in a panic. The way that we reads is... It should sound like he's in a panic. He's beside himself. And he starts off by saying, I cannot dig. And if you're like me, you think, well, there's a lot of other jobs. You don't have to be a, dig, a guy that digs. There's, there's many other things you can do. What about a carpenter? Maybe you can saw. But the way Jesus tells the story, the point isn't that he can't dig. The point is he can't do manual labor. So that's just one example of manual labor, and he, he's not able to do manual labor. Why? We don't know. Jesus doesn't tell us. But the man doesn't consider himself to be able to do manual labor. 
And then he also says, I'm too proud to beg. And I think all of us, that would be true for all of us. None of us want to be standing on the corner where we see these people in Colorado Springs with their signs begging. And somebody from the church drives by and says, what's John Logan doing out there on the street? I mean, that would be really a shameful thing. <laughs> We'd probably give John something. <laughs> but all of a sudden it comes to me, he has an idea. And what's his idea? His idea is to bring in people um, and so that they would receive them into their houses. And some of the uh, translations out there, they change it to, to persons or something else. But Jesus uses that third-person plural pronoun for a specific reason. And it's odd to us because pronouns always point to something before. If I were to refer to he, it's because I've just been referring to John. It's because I've mentioned John. Here, he's, he's not mentioned anybody. So it strikes us as odd. But a few verses later, he's going to use that pronoun again in a funny way. And there's a link there, and he's tying things together very neatly. It's very intentional on part, Jesus' part. But when we read it, right there in that verse, we don't know who they are. But by the very next verse, we learn who he's talking about. So he calls in his master's debtors, and he calls them all in. In fact, what the Greek reads is, calling to himself each and every one of his master's debtors, he said to the first one. So he brought them all in, however many there were. Doesn't matter, but they were all there. The parable, Jesus tells us two debtors. It's just an example again, like I can't dig. So it's just an example of how this man treated these debtors. And what does he do? Well, the first man, in verse 6, owed 100 baths of olive oil. Some translations use it a measure or something else because bath doesn't mean anything to us. But what's a bath? Well, the bath was actually a Hebrew measurement. Um, and nobody's quite sure how much it was. Scholars generally agree it was probably about eight or nine gallons, but we can't be sure of that. But as we think about it, let's just take the lower amount to give us some idea of how much this man owed. So if, he, if a bath was eight and he owed 100, that's 800 gallons of olive oil. If we assume, actually, an olive tree in Jesus' day would produce the same amount of olives as a modern tree, and that's probably a false assumption, and the spacing between the trees was the same, it would have taken at least an acre to produce that much olive oil. And if that was a single man, it, he wasn't in a state or something, but just a single farmer, that would be all that one man could run. And so that was his year's crop. He owed a whole year's crop to this man. It was a significant debt. What did the manager do? He told him to take his bill and rewrite it to himself. Or, excuse me, himself. He himself was to rewrite it. And that, that probably strikes as odd. You know, why was he doing it? Well, it's because actually the Greek word means promissory note. It was probably written by the man in the first place. I owe you 100 baths of olive oil. So it was proper for him to scratch it out and rewrite it in his own handwriting again. And so, again, nothing unusual. It sounds unusual to us, but not to Jesus' listeners. They wouldn't have thought anything of it. And how much did he rewrite it for? Well, Jesus, or the, the, uh, the manager told him to cut the bill in half to 50 baths. I mean... Anybody that gets their bill cut in half is going to be pretty happy. I mean, we look for discounts of 3 or 4%, and this one was 50%, so you better get in on it. Verse 7, then, is the next example. And this guy owed 100 majors of wheat, or the Greek reads cores. Well, once again, what's a core? How much was a core? And once again, nobody's quite sure. But scholars think it was probably somewhere between 10 and 12 bushels. Some scholars think it could have been as much as 14 bushels. But for the sake of calculation, let's take the lower number of 10. 
And the yield per acre in ancient times, as I studied it, was, could be sometimes as poor as four bushels an acre, sometimes as high as 15. In our modern time, it, you know, I preached the same sermon in Kansas and asked them before I preached it how much you would get off an acre. And you can get significantly more than this, and I've since forgotten what they told me. But um, it's, it's quite a lot, 100 plus, you know, sometimes maybe 200, 300 something, I'm not sure. But in ancient times, it wasn't anything. It, it just was a pittance. So if you take the numbers and, and do the multiplication, you get between 67 and 250 acres to grow that much wheat. Well, how much could a man farm in those days? That, that would have been a big operation to farm 250 acres. That would have been a lot of wheat. So some commentators uh, then go on to notice that the, the amount that he was reduced, and how much was he reduced? Um, take your invoice, he told him, sit down and quickly write 50, excuse me, that's wrong, 100 measures a week. Take your invoice and write 80. So it's a 20% reduction. Well, why did he chop 50 for the first guy and 20% for the second guy? Some commentators do think it was monetarily the same amount. We don't know. And maybe it doesn't matter. The point is, the man dealt, dealt wisely with each person and, and dealt with them in their own specific ways. He dealt as he saw fit, really. In verse 8, this is the last verse dealing directly with the parable, and it's the conclusion of our story. But it's a bit of a controversial verse. It really is one that's kind of a sticking point for a lot of people on this passage. In the first half there, it says, The master commanded the unrighteous manager. And one of the troubling things is the word master is the same word that is translated Lord. It's the same Greek word. And all through the New Testament, you see it translated according to the context, whether it's Lord or master. Um, in some ways, it's like our word uh, sir. You know, if you're just being polite, you can say sir, but there, that actually used to be a real title, you know, in, in, in England, for example. But if it's actually, if you take it to mean Lord and not Master, who's it referring to? And this is where commentators kind of get tied up in knots because some of them will say that it's actually speaking of the Lord Jesus. And if that's the case, it would be, he says, the Lord commanded him. That means Jesus is speaking of himself in third person. Um, and we know he did that, but did he use the term Lord? He did once in John 13, 14. He says, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. But in John's gospel, he's not actually speaking of himself in third person. He's just stating his authority and his title, his, his position over his disciples. But in contrast, if, here in this verse, if it's a third person reference to himself, he's calling himself the Lord. And did he ever do that anywhere else in the New Testament? And, and a thorough search shows that he does not. He does not ever use that again anywhere. But he does speak to him of himself in third person. He calls himself the Son of Man, and we know that frequently all through the New Testament. In John's Gospel, he confuses the Jews, the Jewish leaders, who <coughs> at least on one or two occasions wonder who he's speaking of. Where is this guy? Who's this Son of Man? But not the term Lord. He did not refer to himself that way. And thus, it really shouldn't be taken very seriously at all, those who consider that to be the case. So the other option, really, if it is speaking of Jesus is that Luke inserted that, that he himself put that phrase in there. Now, the gospel writers in several places do do that. We, we know that. When we're reading the gospels, we see times when they, when they put a little comment in there. Particularly John, I think, does that. So that would be a consideration. But the other option is these guys 
And some of them are good men. They really are. And they, they, they advocate for Jesus speaking about himself in third person. Um, those that do that or, or that it came from Luke are actually get into the whole mess of these different, different written traditions that were combined. That Luke had several written tr traditions and he combined them and came up with his own gospel. And what that makes is either Luke a bad compiler because he didn't compile it in a way that would actually make more sense or he was a bad editor of that which he was compiling. But I think the point is, really, there's nothing gained by interpreting that way. This parable is really just a liberal, excuse me, to claim it like that is just a liberal claim about this parable. And it's really sort of playing fast and loose with the Word of God. And so I would argue that the title Master, Lord, that term, in this verse must mean the rich man, the manager's master, and it should be translated master. Now, I spent a lot of time on that, but, but that is a real sticking point if you, if you look at commentaries. And so this first half of verse 8, this rich man, that is the master, commended the unrighteous manager. And that sometimes rubs people wrong. This guy was wicked. He was, he was squandering his master's money. And in fact... What was he doing? Well, back in chapter 15, in the uh, parable of the prodigal son, we know the prodigal son takes his father's wealth that he gave him, and he goes off and he squanders is exactly the same word. And that's what this rich man was doing. So he's spending his master's money on himself. Who knows what he's doing, but he's wasting money wildly. And so what is he praised for? He's praised for being shrewd. Well, kids, what does shrewd mean? That's not a word I think we use so much in modern English anymore. But if you use the dictionary definition and, and write it as a sentence, you could say the steward or the manager showed sharp powers of judgment in the matter of losing his job. That's, that's, what, he's, that's what he's being praised for. What's interesting is if you do a, a concordance search on it, the word shrewdly can be translated wisely, and it is a number of times in the New Testament, the exact same word. And this is the word often, as you look through the Gospels, that the... That the, that the disciples were to have this shrewdness with regards to the return of the, the Son of Man. He warns them again and again, be on alert, be ready, be shrewd, this very word. So it's not a negative term at all, though it, often I think we hear shrewd and we think of snakes and this sort of thing, but that's not the case. It's, it's wise and, and it's a sharp powers of judgment. And that's what the man was being praised for. And I think one of the things that causes people to get hung up is not reading it carefully, it sounds like Jesus said that the rich man was commending this man for his sin. And indirectly, that means Jesus was commending this man for his sin. But that's not what it says. That's not the case. And we'll come back to this issue in a bit. In the second half of verse 8, Jesus now gives us a commentary on the parable. And that's also difficult to understand. So verse 8 is kind of a bother. What does Jesus mean by saying, for the sons of this age are more astute than the sons of light in dealing with their own generation? Well, we first have to ask, who, who are these sons of the, this age? And commentators are readily agreed that this, these are the people of this world. They, their main concern is the here and now. They're the people of this age. Well, who are the sons of light? Well, they are people whose main concern is the kingdom of God. In other words, true disciples of Christ, speaking of us. What does it mean that the sons of this age are more astute or more shrewd than we are? What does that mean? Again, I think the commentator Green explains it well. He says that a sinful man in this world could easily be commended for a shrewd behavior in this situation. 
In other words, the manager dealt very well with people of his own kind, but the sons of light should be looking to the new age, the coming age, and thinking about it. Jesus is saying too often, we are people who are not looking ahead as we should. We, like the sons of this age, are more concerned about the here and now. And there's an awful lot of things in our daily life that get in our way and draw our attention away from fixing our eyes on, on eternal things. There's another commentator who said it this way, and I like this. He says, the children of this age are smarter than the children of light when it comes to acting in their best interests. They are motivated by self-interest and self-preservation and concern themselves only with this world. The sons of light should be concerned about the world to come. You know, it's, it is the case that we, wicked people in this world often do act wisely, very wise, in dealing with taking advantage of the systems and things that we have in this world, and maybe not even doing it corruptly. And it's not surprising that they can do this. They, they can take advantage of things sometimes and, and get ahead. But the sons of light, those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, need to be wiser than those. And in particular, we need to be wise towards the matters of the age to come. We need to be kingdom-oriented, eternally focused. And as I study this and I thought about this, I recall something that our pastor, former Pastor Dave Reese used to say, and some of you may remember that. Um, I don't know if it comes from a song or something, a Christian song. It's, um, and, and Dave said, it is not true that we could be so heavenly minded that we are of no earthly good. And he would turn it around. He says, that's a lie. Rather, we need to say it this way. We are to be so heavenly minded that we are earthly good. And I think that's what this parable is teaching. When we wisely put our thoughts and hearts on eternal things, we will show our, our true wisdom, our shrewdness. In verse 9, then, <clears throat> we see this principle again where Jesus gives us a clear application for the parable. He says that we must make friends for ourselves with unrighteous mammon. I think a lot of translations don't just use the Aramaic word. That's, mammon is the Aramaic word. It's, that's just a transliteration. The word means wealth. In Aramaic, it meant wealth. So why does Jesus call it unrighteous wealth? I think when we read that, we often think, oh, it comes from corrupt gain somehow. But John Calvin says that it's probably because it's not eternal. The wealth of this world is not eternal. And it's not enduring. And in fact, Calvin points out that this wealth often turns our hearts from God to it. And so it is unrighteous in that sense. But another commentator points out that Jesus doesn't call it this because it was gained in a sinful way. That's not what he's talking about. That it's most likely loot from a criminal activity or something. But rather, Jesus is contrasting it to true wealth, and that's what we see. It's the contrast in this parable that are important. For example, over in Matthew 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 6, verses 19 through 21, Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will, all, will also be. Yeah, so Calvin's right. Jesus is simply pointing out that worldly wealth is not eternal wealth. It's not something we can take with us when we die. It's not true wealth. There are better things to come. 
So Jesus says we're to use our earthly resources, that which God has given us, to make friends. But that statement, I have encountered people that haven't really liked that statement either. And part of it is because we've read the Proverbs. What does the Proverbs say? The Proverbs say that if you, you take your money and you share it around a lot, you'll have friends. It's not real friends. And somebody else that I spoke to one time years ago said, besides, this doesn't seem like the sort of thing Jesus would say, so I don't think we're understanding this verse. But you know what? Jesus said it, and we need to understand it. And we need to understand it in this context. But the idea of using worldly wealth, you see that in other parts of the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 6, verses 34 through 36. Luke 6, 34 through 36 says, And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do what is good and lend, expecting nothing in return. When your reward, then your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for He is gracious to the ungrateful and evil. Be merciful as your Father also is merciful. And then in chapter 7 of Luke, in verses 41 and 42, Jesus says, excuse me, speaking to a Pharisee who he was a guest in the house of, a creditor had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and another 50. Since they could not pay it back, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Now that's speaking about spiritual forgiveness. But the principle is there. Jesus has the idea that those who have had generous things given to them, whether it's your forgiveness from God or it's a debt being relieved, you're going to love that person. There's going to be real gratitude there. And it is true that if you're not careful with what you've got, you can make friends that are this sort of friends, not real friends. And you know, I, I suppose very rich people like Bill Gates have a lot of friends. And, you know, it would be great to be his friend. But, <laughs> but it's interesting that this, this idea of our generosity that Jesus is trying to teach and that, that it won't be appreciated, there's no assumption on Jesus' part. He knows about that. He, he, he wrote the Proverbs. He, he knows that that can happen. But as he tells this parable and he gives these commands, he doesn't, that doesn't even come across his radar. He's just telling us to do these things. So what does it mean to make friends with unrighteous mammon or worldly wealth? But I suppose really we should ask, who are these friends that we are trying to make? What kind of people are they? And, and this, this point really surprised me. I looked in a lot of commentaries. They're nearly unanimous. They all say the needy. Well, the obvious question is, how needy? The text doesn't say. Um, it, it's just completely missing any point of how needy these people are. In fact, it doesn't actually say that they're needy. And so we'll come back to this in a minute. But this generous behavior contrasts to what the unrighteous manager did at first. He squandered his master's money. He wasted it on himself and maybe his friends, whatever they were at that time. But obviously, at the end of that, he didn't have friends and he needed to make some real friends. Instead, we are to be wise, and we are to make use of what the Lord has given us to make friends, and, and specifically for the kingdom. And I think we have a good idea of what that means. But a word of caution, here in Colorado Springs, you know, in my lifetime, the homeless population has just exploded. As a kid, I don't remember seeing homeless people in Colorado Springs. It was not something we had. And now they're everywhere. 
I mean, they're almost a city unto themselves. And that we've all seen these people sitting in the middle of the street on the median, anything helps, which is a bald-faced lie. They're not telling the truth when they say that. What those people need and what could actually help them, they don't want. They would refuse it. If they were actually willing to receive help and not just a handout, well, all they want is a handout. They want you to give them some kind of a handout. But if you could actually provide some real help to them, something that would benefit them, um, and you could include it with kingdom-oriented processes, you know, speaking the gospel to them, this sort of thing, then it would make sense to try to help some of those people. But they don't want that kind of help. But what are ways that we can obey Jesus' command if we're not to just hand out money on the street to these people? Well, I think there are organizations like Compassion International and Rafiki Foundation who do try to make wise use of the money that's donated to them. And they, they work with the poor, but not just to relieve their financial burdens. They, they do all kinds of things. Particularly Rafiki, they are very kingdom-oriented. And their whole, gospel, whole, whole uh, goal is to present the gospel to those people in these places. And that is a worthwhile organization to support. And I think there are other ways to obey, obey Jesus' command, not just giving to uh, organizations like that. But whatever we do, we need, it needs to be kingdom-focused. And in doing so, it's laying up eternal treasures for ourselves when we do this. You will be welcomed into an eternal abode. Again in Luke, Luke chapter 12, verses 32 through 34, Jesus says, Don't be afraid, little flock. Because your father delights to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Make money bags for yourselves that won't grow old. An inexhaustible treasure in heaven. Where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. So just a quick and important side note. Jesus isn't teaching that giving of alms is going to earn us our salvation. That's not the point of what Jesus has just said there in, in Luke 12. But what he's saying is those of us who are sons and daughters of light, those who have been justified and forgiven, we need to be doing these sorts of things because it is near and dear to the Father's heart. As his children, this is what he wants us to be doing. Back to our parable in this passage, verse 9. The uh, last part of verse 9 says, Because when it runs out, they will welcome you into eternal dwellings. And instead of when it runs out, the King James says, when you fail. Um, but, but it doesn't really matter. It's a euphemism for when you die. It doesn't matter which way you, you, you word it. It means exactly the same thing. When you die, they will welcome you into eternal dwellings. So now, who is this group of they? Well, this is where scholars really get tied in knots. When you look at it, you, you'll see these guys going in deep and hard and trying to sort this out. So some scholars say that the, they are the angels. Some scholars say that they is an indefinite way of speaking of God, sort of like the divine passive, where you leave the, the name out. You know, you will be saved. Who's going to save you? Well, God is. Some scholars say that it, the antecedent, the thing that the they is actually referring to here, is the friends. And actually, if you look at the grammar, that's the correct interpretation. But maybe it's, that's not exactly what Jesus meant. Maybe he meant all of them. But I, I think the key here is this is not a strict theological statement. This is part of Jesus' parable and his teaching in general. So if we step back and look at the forest and not get tangled up in the trees, we see what the unrighteous manager did earlier. The they were these debtors of his master, and he was hoping to win some of them to true friendship, and they would take care of him after he loses his job, so in his next life. 
In the same way, we're to use our material possessions to make friends so that they will welcome us into an eternal home. It's a parallel thing that Jesus is playing there between the first part and then the second part. It is not a precise theological statement. And so when it's not a precise theological statement for theologians to work it down and try to make it a precise theological statement, often you get into trouble. And I think it's important to stand back and understand it as it was meant. R.C. Sproul always says, yeah, you interpret it literally. What's the context? Is it a precise theological statement? It is not. So you have to interpret it according to that principle. One of the things we know is that it is God that will welcome us into eternal dwellings. There's no question. He is going to be there. The Lord Jesus is going to welcome us. And we know from enough passages the angels are going to be there too. They rejoice when a new person is born into the kingdom of God. But I think it also means those that we have been kind to and ministered to who have come to Christ and precede us in death, they will be there to welcome us too. So circling back for a moment, notice that there is an expectation that they will welcome us into eternal homes means, and this is where I've been getting this, it means that it is kingdom focused. That's the point. If you can be kind to somebody on the street, it doesn't mean they're, they're going to come into the kingdom. They may be held bound just as much as they were a minute ago. And so our whole ministry is to point people to Christ. That's what we need to be doing. And you know, if you know something about the early 20th century ministries and Christian liberalism, you know that there were a lot of ministries and, and organizations that were actually intent on helping indigent people. But they gave them things. They fed them. And there are some of those today even. And they don't present the gospel with it. That is a fundamental difference between a liberal ministry and a Christ-centered ministry. And we are a Christ-centered ministry. So the gospel has to be going out with the gift. In verses 10 and 11, if you've been following this along, you get to 10 and 11, you kind of wonder, now wait a minute, did he change the subject? Because it seems like a very different change. And Jesus does that in a lot of his parables. And, and I learned a long time ago that if you don't understand that last statement, or maybe these statements since they're not quite last, you kind of miss the point. And so they do fit together. Jesus knew what he was saying, and we need to understand what he's saying. People wonder here is, again, is the wicked, dishonest manager who practiced graft, is he being honored? No, he's not. But to understand these verses, to enable us to understand the parable, one commentator states, Verse 10 begins a section that modifies the impression that Jesus had been praising a dis dishonest action. It actually corrects that. If you've thought that up till now, these verses should set you straight. He was not. And he, he didn't say in his parable that the, the, that the master, the rich man, was praising him either. And, and one of the ways we see this is he, Jesus puts a bunch of opposites before us. You have faithful compared to dishonest. You have faithful compared to not, dis not faithful little to much, unrighteous wealth to true riches, and so on. He goes back and forth with these, these contrasts. So he's con con throughout this whole thing, there's a bunch of contrasts between the good and bad. And back in verses 8 and 9, it says, The master commends the manager for his shrewdness, while the narrator of the parable Jesus actually identifies the manager as dishonest. So Jesus didn't commend the man for his dishonesty. The master didn't commend the man for his dishonesty. It was simply for the man's shrewdness. Jesus never praises the man's sin. He praises the man's prudence and how he used the wealth that he had available to him as the manager 
although it was somebody else's, to later make sure he was welcomed into somebody's home. And in the same way, we are to take, make use of our own wealth to make friends so that they will welcome us into, the, into heaven. So just in case you're still struggling with this, what looks like Jesus praising sin possibly, I want to say one more thing. It was a common practice as rabbis taught to take something that was very evil, very bad, and contrast that with God. Because to talk about God was, is very difficult. He's infinite. He's holy. How do you describe that? Well, one of the ways is to say, see how bad this is? God is everything this isn't. In fact, Jesus does this in other parables. You, you're familiar with the parable of the, the, the judge, this wicked judge that this widow goes to and keeps pounding on his door. And the whole point is God's not like that. Even that guy gave the, that widow relief. How much more will God? God is everything that that guy isn't. And, and really, that's what we see here. Here's a wicked man, and yet he did one little thing right, and we're supposed to do it better. We're supposed to do it far better than he does. Verse 10, it's a familiar saying of Jesus. We see it in other parts of the gospel. The one who is faithful in trivial things, it actually says trivial things, tiny little things, is also faithful in much. And the one unfaithful in trivial things also in much will be unrighteous. So this idea has come up um, in Jesus' teaching already and, and many other places, and you see when one is given a small responsibility and does it well, he's given a greater reward. And so it's actually a promise. Be faithful. So children, when your mom or dad has you do a small task, do it with joy. Do it faithfully. You will be benefited by that uh, just, just in your own heart, but you will be rewarded with greater responsibility. That's a promise. It will happen, and it's how our world works, really. But those who aren't faithful in even small things and trivial things, are simply unreliable in greater things. I mean, that's just the case. If you're an employer and you've got an employee who, who's starting out and does a poor job at the small things, you're not going to give him or her the responsibilities for more important things. In verse 11, it makes the point even clearer in case we missed it. The unrighteous wealth contrasts with true riches. And in fact, it says genuine riches, not true riches, genuine riches. And we know what those are from these other passages. It's riches that are stored up in heaven. In verse 12, it makes it clear that what we have is not our own, actually. We call it our own, but it's not really our own. All of what we have has come from God's hand. We are, the, we are compared to the household manager in this sense. And the money and the things that we have are all from God. We're managing His things. Some of us have more, some of us have less. It doesn't matter. It's all from God. But we are not like the wicked manager in any way except that we are to act shrewdly preparing for our future. That's the only point of comparison. And for us, it's our eternal future. And then finally, verse 13 tells us that we cannot love both God and money. You know, we need worldly wealth to live in this world. We have to have it. There's no question. You don't have it, and you're going to be a person in the middle of the street with a sign. How we live in this world is actually God ordained this. Pastor Dave preached through Genesis one time, and he shows that it comes right out of the beginning of Genesis, that God put value on things, put value on gold. And so this is the systems we have in this world. But we should not love money. And in fact, a verse that we read this morning, uh, two verses actually, I'll make reference again in our uh, long gospel reading. One is from Colossians 3.5. Paul there tells us that covetousness is idolatry. 
In Hebrews 13.5, we are warned to stay away from the love of money. And the old King James translates that covetousness there. Hebrews 13.5 goes on to say that we are to be content with what we have. We are to love God and serve Him. And chasing wealth is risky. That's not to say we shouldn't work hard and try to do well. That's not what that means. But that should not become our God. So the question we have to ask and ask myself is, do you love God or do you love mammon? Jesus is warning us in this parable. And he's warning us to take care of, of our eternal destiny. And so this first, if we were first century Jews and we heard Jesus say this parable, we would have been very uncomfortable with this. And we can tell that's the case because in verse 14, the Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things and scoffing at him. They didn't like it. They didn't like what he was saying. They got it. They understood what he was saying. And it made him uncomfortable. You know, it makes us uncomfortable too in the modern days. Jesus uses this sinful man as an example of what we are to do. But we're not to follow him. We're not to squander and, and be irresponsible and be wicked. We are to be wiser about our future than he was. Jesus did not praise the sinful manager's sin. In fact, it's an implicit, there's an implicit denunciation of, the, of that man's sin. He lost his job. He was in trouble. No one praises his sin. But if this sinful man can act wisely for his future, how much more can the children of light act for, uh, regarding theirs? How much more can we prepare for ours? Though Jesus' words seem radical, and they certainly are, in contrast to the ways of this world, they're not actually his words. He got them from the Old Testament. They're new, not new, brand new with him in the New Testament. You see this through the whole scriptures. In the Old Testament, we see God's deep concern for the poor, for the orphan and the widow, for the sojourners in the land, sojourners, children of travelers, people who were not in their own homes. Earlier, I mentioned that commentators agree that those who make friends, that we're to make friends with, by means of our possession, are the poor. But it's not in the passage. It doesn't say that. So I, I guess I slightly disagree. As I've meditated on this and studied this and, and tried to consider it in a broader context of the scriptures, what we see is that we're commanded to be generous with what we have across the board. We're to show hospitality, and this includes strangers. And it can include brothers and sisters in Christ. There's no reason it can't. Jesus didn't exclude that. You know, when I preached this sermon in Quinter, I recalled as I was there how this little church, I mean, they have really dwindled in small numbers, but if you are passing through Quinter on a Lord's Day, and you stop in for worship, and that has happened. I have people in this congregation and not many other people. Those dear people open their arms, and they'll feed you lunch. They'll take care of you. That's what this is speaking of. It's kingdom-oriented business, being generous with what you have. There's nothing in Jesus' parable to command or the command to think of the future that excludes showing kindness to our brothers and sisters in Christ. When you show kindness and hospitality to others, regardless of whether they are Christian or non-Christians, and you... The central focus of what you're doing is Christ-centered. You're saving up wealth, eternal wealth. You're making friends for the kingdom. I have an interesting story. Years ago, I was visiting a friend in Oregon, and uh, we were in Portland. He, he didn't live in Portland, but we were, ran around there for a day. And we, we were hungry, went into McDonald's, and while we were there, a homeless guy came in, and he was a bit inebriated, and he was begging for food. And so my friend, he was a remarkable guy. He, he, he got the guy's attention, which was hard to do, and said, are you hungry? Oh, yeah, that guy was hungry. He, he wanted something to eat. And my friend says, all right, I'll get you something to eat. And he went up and he bought him a big meal. I think it was a Big Mac meal. Brought it back, and the man was ready to grab it. Nope. He pulled it back from him and said, you can't have it. I need to tell you something first. 
and you must listen to me or you won't get this. Well, he had the guy's attention then, and he laid it out. You're a sinner, and your problem being addicted to alcohol and the condition you're in is all due to your sin. And he walked it through and explained that Jesus died for sinners. The man heard the whole gospel. Did he get it? Who knows? But he gave him the food. The man devoured it. That, that's what this is speaking of. We're to do it in such a way that is kingdom-focused. I think there are many, many ways to apply this in our lives, and, and I think that's why we're not given examples, because we would probably limit it to those few examples. But I think as the Lord leads us, we, we, we come across things all the time, things, small things that we do, and particularly if they can be kingdom-focused. So one of the central themes is this, we're not to value our mammon so much that we are unwilling to use it to make friends for the kingdom. We're to love God first and foremost and serve Him alone, not our mammon. We're to use what God has given us in ways that honor Him, whether it's hospitality, giving to the poor, donating to an organization, or whatever it is that the Lord leads you to do. And so we see Jesus' parable illustrates how the children of light are to actually be. We are to be wise with regards to our eternal future. We're to use what God has given us and remember that it is actually not our own. This includes using what God has given us to make friends and in particular to make friends for the kingdom. We're to be generous in ways that allow the good news of Jesus to be proclaimed to those who still need to hear it. And that's what Jesus is teaching. If you would, please grab your Psalter and rise with me as I pray and then we'll Turn to Psalm 112. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you have made us your own, that you have sent the Lord Jesus, and he has done a work that no one could do. A perfect man who lived a perfect life, righteous and holy, and yet submitted to this terrible death on the cross. And he, he died. He died for our sins. And he rose from the grave. Father, we have hope because of him. And you have adopted us. We are your sons and daughters. We are children of the light. And so I pray, Father, that, that you would teach us more and more how to live as children of the light. That we could use our worldly wealth in ways that honor you. And that doesn't just mean donating it, but to use it wisely. Father, I think our people here do. That's not to say any of us don't, but we all are sinners, and I pray you would teach us to do this more and more as Jesus wants us to. And so we do commit ourselves to you in that way, in his holy name. Amen.